Well, hello and welcome to a special edition, another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, and my wife is playing producer today, and we are streaming live from the Free Market Medical Association Annual Conference in Kansas City, Missouri. And this is a First time Jan and I have ever been to Missouri, so we can check another state off our bucket list. And um, because Kansas is so close, we'll be checking Kansas off our bucket list, too, because you guys that follow us on social media, you know that we're on a 50-state tour of the United States. And this year, we're checking a whole bunch off, and um, all of them will be checked besides Hawaii. So we will save Hawaii for next year and, and check them all off. So I am super excited to have Peter Klein on our podcast today. Um, he is... Uh, Promotes free markets. Um, he's written an author of many books. We're going to be talking about his most recent book, um, Why Managers Matter, here later in the podcast. But today we're going to be focusing on regulations. And specifically when we talk about regulations, it's usually regulations come from the government, whether they be local, state, or federal regulations. And um, I'm going to let the expert go into more detail. But you know, as consumers, we're always sold on the fact that regulations are good for us and they're for our safety. And we're going to be getting into the details of if they really are or not. And you guys can make that decision. So without further ado, Peter, welcome to our show. Sean, thanks so much for having me. It's uh, fun to be here at this conference. And I used to be a Missouri resident, so it's great to be back in state and to enjoy uh, all the fine amenities the city has to offer. Yeah, awesome. So tell us a little bit about your history. Yes, yeah, so I'm a professor. Uh, I've been teaching in higher education for 25, 30 years. I, I'm embarrassed to sort of count them up, but um, right now, I, uh, or for the last eight years, I've been a professor in the business school at Baylor University um, in the Department of Entrepreneurship and Corporate Innovation, where I work with undergraduate students, graduate students, uh, do research. I also help to run our free enterprise center. I'm also affiliated with the Mises Institute, which is a free market educational uh, organization. Um, my background is in economics. Uh, my PhD is uh, in econ, and I mostly do economics-oriented research and teaching. I've been at a variety of different uh, universities and organizations over the years, uh, but I have a lot of interest in uh, in regulation and government policy more generally, and, and the health industry in particular. Well, that is quite a resume. Um, when I think of econ and economics, this is going to go on a little bit of a tangent, but it's an interesting thing to me. Um, when I think of e I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, sure. but, I, but I know you're the expert, so you'll know exactly who I'm talking about. But when I think of economic interests, um, I think of a quote from Milton Friedman, who is just uh, – you know, he is somebody that I really idolize when it comes to um, economy, economics. And, you know, one thing he said about um, economic principles is that the, the world runs on economic interest. And we're always called selfish if, if we say that or we believe that. But it's just truth, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, economic analysis starts with the assumption that people have certain characteristics, people behave in certain ways. It's not necessarily a psychological construct of selfishness, uh, you know, where there might be a negative ethical connotation to it, although that's commonly believed. But no, economics believes that people act with purpose and self-interest 
you know, defined in a certain way. In other words, uh, as another great free market economist, Ludwig von Mises put it, human action in the real world is about using means to achieve ends. Right. I mean, we're doing a podcast today. We're sitting in a hotel room. We have fancy equipment. We have an expert technical staff. Um, the reason we did all those things, the reason we have these resources is because we want to have this nice conversation and broadcast it to your to your smart and, uh, uh, you know, engaged listeners. And we would not be able to accomplish that objective if we didn't have control or access to these resources. So, again, you know, prices come into into play here. If the cost of renting the room, of buying the equipment, of getting support were to go up, rationally, we will probably choose to do fewer podcasts than we did before. Not because we don't like podcasts, but because those resources, yeah. our money, et cetera, are more urgently needed for other things, taking care of our families or right. doing our day jobs. So people are always making decisions, uh, trying to make the best use of the resources that they have or can obtain. That's all we mean by economic rationality. It's not meanness. It's not, you know, crass materialism or whatever, even though critics of economics, right. and we can talk about why people are critical of economics, often mischaracterize it in those ways. Yeah. I think one thing too, that a good friend um, told me who's, who's, uh, you know, basically using free market principles. He's also a doctor. You know, there's a difference between self-interest and selfishness. Um, and, and the reality of it is, Pretty much every one of our individual decisions that we make are based on every day, whether it be to do this podcast or whether it be to, you know, go to a certain restaurant, they're based on self-interest. Oh, sure. And it doesn't mean you're selfish necessarily. And um, some of the some of the people that call other people selfish, they don't understand that at every one of our decisions um, is based on yeah. self-interest. What, what many critics mean when they accuse people like us, for example, of being overly selfish, they mean that our preferences are different from theirs. Right? <laughs> right. What they think we ought to be doing with our time is different than what we do. But look, I mean, if I choose to, you know, cut back at work to spend more time with my family, if I want to dedicate my life to, you know, philanthropy, if I want to retire to a monastery and contemplate, you know, the eternal truths of the universe, that's all self-interested behavior. Self-interest doesn't refer only to material gain. It refers to any goals, yeah. our desire to pursue any goals that right. we have. Right. So um, back on our topic, uh, our topic of the podcast. So how does, how does regulation come into play when we talk about economics? Yeah. I mean, the, you know, if you look at the typical, well, typical economics textbook, but really even sort of typical history textbooks, or you just ask the you know, people on the street, uh, what do they think about markets? Do they like living in a market society? I mean, most people would say, yeah, if I have to choose, uh, you know, a capitalist, Western style capitalist economy over, you know, 1950s era Soviet socialism, they would choose markets. They like material markets tend to produce high levels of material well-being, which people like. Markets also are compatible with a high degree of personal liberty, which people like. But you know, people will say, and the textbooks will say, well, yeah, but, you know, we don't want to let the market go too far. I mean, if left to its own devices, you know, because of selfishness, as you mentioned, you know, then all kinds of terrible things would happen. You know, small children would be working in the factories and big companies would be putting poison in our food and automaker, uh, you know, airplane manufacturers would forget to add the wings and the thing would just right. crash. So we need government action, right? We need, we need uh, organizations, particularly governments, 
to control or regulate the market, which can mean, you know, to sort of guide and steer it in one direction. Like nowadays, everyone is interested in, you know, green, you know, making the economy more green. So regulators might think, well, the economy, you know, left to its own devices will, you know, have too much investment in fossil fuels. And we, whoever is the we, right, we know better. We know that it would really be better for humanity to have more investment in green energy. So we're going to have to regulate to kind of steer the market in that direction or more to your point. Um, but, you know, we need to protect people from harm because the pursuit of self-interest in a market context will naturally, this is the argument, it's not correct, but this is the argument, will naturally cause uh, people to be harmed, right? Someone wants to make a quick buck and, and these people believe the way you make money in the market is by scamming and cutting corners and taking advantage of your consumers. And so we need regulation to make sure that companies, sellers, market participants are not harming each other, taking advantage of naive consumers and so forth. That's the standard argument for why we have regulation. I think, as you can tell by the way I'm answering, I think there are a lot of weaknesses in that standard argument. Well, I mean, so one of the things that comes up to me is that, you know, regulation is always kind of put into play because because of our safe, because it makes us safer. And, and here's the thing that I like to say in a free market, you know, when, when the government does a regulation and they say because they want to prevent, you know, somebody consumers from getting hurt. Well, pick any business, XYZ business. When consumers are paying their bills, the last thing they want to do is hurt a consumer. Right. I mean, and the reality of it is, is that that's business suicide. So I, I know, you know, a few years back and it's happened a few times, Oh, it's probably 20 years ago when there was an E. coli outbreak in one of the meat packers. And the the USDA was accusing the company of trying to cover stuff up. And, and I mean, the CEO basically said this. It's like, you know, why would we do this? This costs us millions of dollars, if not billions. I don't know. Um, it would be business suicide. Why would we purposely try to contaminate our meat? eat with E. coli and know it's out there and, and not fix it. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, a couple points to elaborate on that. I mean, first, let's step back and think about safety more generally, right? Of course, we all want safety. We prefer more safety to less other things equal. But safety, again, to use sort of economics jargon, safety is kind of an economic good too. You want more of it, but you're sometimes willing to trade off safety for other things. You know, you know, to use the cliche, every time you get in the car and drive down the street, you're putting your life at risk. Absolutely. And of course, you're you're much more likely to be seriously injured or even killed driving down the street in a car than you are flying in a plane or, <laughs> you know, taking a certain kind of medicine. But we do it all the time. Why? Because the cost of not using an automobile or other forms of transportation to get around is too high. It means isolation. It means you're stuck at home. And I could stay at home all day and have all my groceries delivered and, you know, work from home and never leave my house or apartment. And that would certainly give me more safety in terms of reducing my chances of being harmed in an autom automobile accident. Very few people do that because they say, yeah, it's a risk to get in the car, but I'm willing to take that risk. So that leads to the question, well, how should these decisions be made? I mean, what is the appropriate level of risk? Um, should, we'll get into this more later, but think about drug testing. I mean, how many, how many trials, 
how many years of a safety record is necessary before we consume a product. In principle, you could say we need a thousand years of evidence on the safety of you know that hamburger before somebody is allowed to eat it. Well, that doesn't make sense. Should we have no safety data whatsoever? Well, most people probably wouldn't do that either. They would choose something in the middle. But where where is that point? And who should make that decision? Yeah. Should it be a voluntary negotiation between the consumer and the producer, or should it be a third party? And also to your point, uh, you're exactly right. Um, manufacturers, sellers, it's in their long-term interest, of course, to make their customers happy and satisfied and, and healthy and, and, and so forth. I mean, why wouldn't, I think this is, I think about this in terms of airline safety inspections and airline rules. I mean, what airline wants its planes to crash Oh, we can make a quick buck by not servicing the engines correctly. And, and even more so, who has a stronger incentive to make sure that an airplane is safe? The airplane manufacturer and or the company operating the airline or some dude who works at the FAA, right? What happens <laughs> if a plane crashes? What happens if a medication turns out to be unsafe? How many people at a government regulatory agency lose their jobs? Zero. The answer is zero. Yep. What is the career implication for a bureaucrat who makes an error in, you know, in either direction on a safety decision? They'll probably get rewarded or promoted anyway. What will happen to a private sector participant who right. makes that mistake? They're gone. It, so from a systematic exactly. point of view, it seems like you would want private actors not Government right. regulators making these decisions. There's no accountability when it comes to the people that make it in the regulations. Here's a good example, just a personal example that we use that I was just thinking of um, when we we, we travel we travel and uh, we travel with bikes a lot, and um, TSA always goes through <clears throat> and they check they check our our bike bags, and one of the things that they do. Is you know, and TSA that they're out there to keep us safe. They're, they're there for our safety, so so we, we you know we we don't get hurt. And one of the things they they invariably do is they leave one of the pockets in my bike bag unzipped, and it has tools and some other things in there to to help put my bike together and and things and and it just spreads all over the case. Right. And I think about that, you know. So then we're like, well, what do we do? Who who do we call to stop this from happening? Nobody. Imagine in a private, because there's no accountability. They don't care. I mean, imagine if the airlines were doing their own. I would call XYZ Airlines and I'd say, hey, you know, when you guys checked my bags, you guys unzipped, you didn't zip up a pocket and everything was scattered in my bag, they would fix it because I'm their paying customer. Yeah, that's right. Or I would go somewhere else with, with a government agency, TSA, for example, they're monopoly. You can go nowhere else. That's right. And you can't get a hold of anybody. There's no accountability. Nobody would get fired anyway. If you did get a hold of somebody, you know, nothing would happen. Nothing would change. And I think you can take that, take that even one step further. That the, you know, the private security operator for by dealing with bikes or airport security, whatever, their objective, right? In a profit profit loss system, they're trying to earn profits, avoid losses. How do they do that? By satisfying their customers, by coming up with the right amount of safety regulation and convenience that you know makes customers want to choose their airline or their airport over the other. What's the incentive of the TSA? Well, partly it's to increase the authority and span of control of the TSA. Mm -hmm. It's to generate employment for TSA officers. So 
uh, the, t the government regulators have an incentive to impose more and more burdensome regulation because that leads to a higher budget, that leads to greater employment, perks, benefits. They want, they have a systematic incentive to ex exaggerate not only the harm they claim to be addressing, but also their effectiveness at alleviating that harm with no market test, no feedback, no accountability. Yeah, right. It reminds me of another story too. When, when we talk about free markets, uh, I was talking with a dairy farmer one time. I was in a duck blind hunting, and, and this he was just a you know libertarian principle and believed in free markets. Except in the dairy industry, he didn't believe in free markets. There needed, <laughs> they needed to be government regulation because um, there's a lot of dairy farmers out there that would kill people with their milk if, if the government wasn't regulating them. So I want your opinion on this. I'm going to state my opinion. This is what this is how I responded to him. I'm like, well, they wouldn't kill people for very long because they wouldn't stay in business. And my whole argument with government regulation is you could make a very valid argument that the more government regulation there is in the industry, let's say the food industry, let's say the drug industry, it makes people wash their hands of their own responsibility to find out who is good and who is bad in the market. And they just say, well, gosh, I mean, this drug is FDA approved or, or the USDA put their stamp on this milk. It's got to be good. Whereas in the olden days before these government regulators, what you would do is you would call your neighbor and say, hey, Mrs. Doe, Mm -hmm. Where do you get your eggs? Oh, we buy them from Farmer Joe up the road, and, and they're really good. And or or milk or use any kind of commodity. Um, you would talk to other people instead of looking to the government and saying, "Well, what did the government approve?" And thinking that that's safe. You could argue that more people could die based on a big food outbreak like the E. coli scare because the government approved this stuff. Whereas if it's a smaller organization where People are doing their own due diligence in, in a free market. Um, not as many people are going to die because um, it's uh, it's on a smaller scale. I mean, what, what's your, oh, what's I, your comment? I agree entirely with your analysis. I mean, a little bit of this is um, I don't know a sort of a myopia or a blindness in our own uh, area of expertise. I had a colleague. They used to joke, uh, a professor, a friend of mine, used to say, "Well, I'm in favor of free markets in every industry." Except higher ed, where I want massive government subsidies, you know, to bump up my salary. Some of it's that. But you raise a really interesting point, Sean. And it's, you know, the way, again, the way regulation is typically described in the textbooks and so forth is, you know, well, the, the, the businesses being regulated will always want less regulation because that, you know, that keeps them from making, you know, a quick buck. In fact, if you look at the history of regulation and then you think theoretically about it, it you can... I mean, we see there are many cases where some kinds of companies actually prefer more regulation because it gives them an advantage relative to other companies in the market. A classic example of that that's really relevant for our topic is, you know, some of your history buff listeners may know, the first major piece of federal food-related health and safety regulation in the U.S., was the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, mm -hmm. the, the, the act that would eventually lead to the formation of the Food and Drug Administration mm -hmm. in, in, in your industry, everybody's best friend. Um, you know, and again, the standard story is, oh, well, you know, companies were putting all kinds of terrible stuff in their food. There was this, uh, there were these muckraking journalists like uh, uh, Sinclair, um, 
is it Sinclair Lewis? No, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the name for a moment. Yeah, Upton Sinclair, sorry, wrote this book called The Jungle about the meatpacking industry, arguing that, you know, all these horrible practices and, you know, workers would fall into the meat grinder and they would just keep grinding and, you know, yeah. put that in the hamburger or whatever. Um, so there were some uh, uh, meatpacking regulations. There was a Meatpacking Inspection Act of uh, 1896, I think, and then another big one at the same time as the Food and Drug Act 1906 that all came from the same sort of source. The meatpacking example is really interesting because uh, the, 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 uh, the folks pushing for this Meat Safety Inspection Act were uh, small uh, local mom and pop butcher shops who were being put out of business by the Swift company in particular, Gustavus Swift, and his highly efficient and mechanized centralized meat processing model. You know, he had these large plants in Chicago where they would prepare meat, and the invention of refrigerated railroad cars allowed them to do all the processing in one central location and then send the processed meat out to the retail, you know, to the cities and towns. It was faster, it was more efficient, and it was much cheaper than meat sold by the local butcher shops who couldn't compete. What did they do? They put pressure on their representatives to say, oh my gosh, these big Chicago companies are selling, you know, they're selling bad meat. They're selling tainted meat. You need to hit them hard to prevent them from harming the consumer. Really what they wanted was the government to hit these firms hard, to make their prices go up, yeah. to increase their costs so that the less efficient competitors could, 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 could compete. Sometimes it's the reverse. Oftentimes it's big companies that want regulations put on the industry knowing that they can afford to meet those requirements more easily than smaller firms. Like your older listeners will remember, I guess it was during the George first George Bush administration, the Americans with Disabilities Act, you know, which requires facilities to be accessible, yeah. you know, a certain number of parking spaces for disabled drivers and bathrooms need to have ramps. We're all familiar with that. We take it for granted. Uh, this was national legislation that uh, required businesses above a certain size to make these sorts of accommodations. And you think, well, gosh, I mean, how can anybody oppose that? Yeah. I mean, it sounds horrible and cruel. Of course you want all facilities to be accessible. But again, if you're Walmart, if you're a large manufacturing concern, it's trivial for you to install ramps and to repave your parking lot and to reconfigure the bathroom so there are some stalls that are larger than others that can accommodate a wheelchair. That's a teeny tiny fraction of your operating costs. Boom, no problem. If you're a mom and pop, you don't have the funds. You don't have the budget to make those renovations, to make those changes. So these kind of many health and safety rules, and that's a good example, they impose a disproportionate cost on smaller and newer firms relative to larger, more established firms. So you often see big incumbents pushing hard. Oh, our industry needs yep. to be regulated more because they think that gives them a competitive advantage in the marketplace. Yeah. I mean, a good example of that is in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, because of such over-regulation, there are basically three or four big drug companies right. in the world now. And if you do have a little, a little startup company that's doing some kind of specialty drug, they know that the only way that they can really afford to go through the approval process is get bought out by a bigger company right. that then goes through the approval process. And, and that is an unintended consequence of regulation is, is really what it does is 
it creates not, maybe not a monopoly, but an, oligar- an oligopoly where there's just a few big players in the system that can meet the method that can meet the regulation. And in the end, I mean, consumers lose higher prices, lower quality and, and, and worse service. And, and the, the reason that is, is because there is no, the free market is not in play anymore and consumers don't get to make a choice. They're basically told what choice they can make by the, um, by the, by the government regulation. Yeah. No, you're exactly right. I think that regulation, one way to put it, is often serves uh, to cartelize a certain industry to make sure that a few large players, typically incumbents, and also typically politically connected, <laughs> of course, <laughs> will always, you know, will have control of that market over newer, smaller, maybe more innovative rivals who, who yeah. can't break in because the regulation is not designed to accommodate. Right. Let's talk about um, one of the first. When I think of regulation. Um, I also think of licensing, mm. and in the healthcare industry, um, licensing is 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 a form of regulation because it, it's you know the government is putting their stamp of approval on who is good and who is bad, and when you look at the original licenses, was um, I think and you might know this in the eighteen fifties mid eighteen hundreds and it was physicians, and and these doctors were saying well we want to prevent these people. You, you know, we want to make sure that if you're a doctor, that you're qualified and you can't just say you're a doctor. And, and you know, so we need these state, these state organizations to, to license us. Can you talk about the history of licensing and, sure. and does licensing make us any safer? I mean, look, I can say as a professor in a business school with a Ph.D., it is vital that only people with a PhD, in fact, only with a PhD, pretty much like mine, should be allowed to teach in a business school. Otherwise, unqualified, you know, fly-by-nighters might be teaching bad theories and principles to students, and that would harm humanity. So we need to make sure that only someone kind of exactly like me can get to have that nice, cushy job. I mean, once you state it that way, it sounds more ridiculous. Right, right, right. I, I use the example with my students of, um, uh, you know, occupational licensing for, you know, hairdressers. And, and in Washington State, dog groomers. Yeah, sure. I mean, we can go with all these examples. I mean, and I'm, not, I'm not minimizing that job. Sure. But, but is it the case that we need to protect society from dogs with a bad haircut? I mean, no. <laughs> right. Typically what occupational licensing does and what it did from the beginning was to restrict the supply of persons who are legally able to practice the profession or activity. It's obvious why that would benefit incumbent practitioners because it, you know, sim- you know, it's simple supply and demand. If you reduce the number of people who can qualify for the job, they can earn high, they can earn higher wages and salaries than if you sort of open it uh, to everybody. And um, you know, what about the argument that you? Only qualified people should be permitted. Okay, you, you can say, yeah, you don't want some, you know, guy who watched a couple of YouTube videos to be doing open heart surgery, right? right? That is true. But then it kind of relates back to where we started this conversation. In the absence of state enforced occupational licensing, what would happen? Is it the case that oh, you know, I've got a problem with my heart? Um, hey, who wants to do it? Oh, yeah, here's a guy on the street corner holding up a little sign. No, I mean we would have other institutions, procedures, policies, mechanisms, as we even do now, that help to protect against, help to, to, to provide safety. Remember, safety is an economic good. You can have more or less of it on the margin. So some patients would say, I will, you know, I'm wealthy. My health is the most important thing. I will pay 
top dollar to make sure I have the best heart surgeon in the world. How will I know that? I can use their, you know, third party certification, yep. consumer reports, you know, Better Business Bureau, whatever, you, uh, Underwriters Laboratory. I can look for a seal of approval, and there would be an incentive in a free market for third party certifiers to to emerge and to perform that role, just like we have customer reviews on Yelp or something. Right. So that that those kinds of mechanisms would come into play. But there might be other patients who say, "Look, I have a more minor health issue." Uh, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't want to spend all of my income on addressing that issue. I'm willing to go to the provider that has, you know, is not a five star provider, but only four point two stars. But they're a lot cheaper, or they're closer to where I live, or it's more convenient. Let you know, the market can sort of sort this out. Um, so it's like licensing is trying to solve a problem that can be solved in other ways and is solved by other ways. And licensing also creates this artificial scarcity of people. It's also a one size fits all. You either have the license or you don't. Right. Uh, and, and customers are, how shall I say, uh, you know, it's harder for really excellent providers to distinguish themselves from the marginal ones. And well, we all went to medical school. Yeah. You've got a law degree just like this guy does. You, should, you know, what's the difference? Whereas in a free market, we would expect a lot more gradation, a lot more variety, and people would be able to choose the combination of service and price and quality that they want. Well, and to your to your point on, you know, it's harder for the good doctors or licensed person to, to, to stand out um, because what, what a license does is it makes everybody the same, you know. Um, and on the flip side, it's easier for a bad doctor to stay in business, whereas a bad doctor in a free market, right. they would be out of business almost immediately, you know, because one or two patients would say, well, this guy is, you know, but when they're licensed, it's like, well, gosh, you, you know, he's licensed. I mean, he's got to be a good guy. Absolutely. And we have so much experience now. I mean, the you know, look at the app store on your mobile device. I mean, there's there's thousands and thousands of apps, but very few of them actually are commercially viable. Why? If, if, if the app is no good, it will get slammed. <laughs> you know, in the app store reviews and it won't get downloaded and used. I mean, I, I guess, Sean, the, the issue is there is a belief. I mean, let's be fair to people who support health and safety regulation, other kinds of regulation. There is a belief that, OK, yeah, sure. For apps, for, for you know, for little games on your phone, that, that kind of system, a rating system is fine. But not for you know, health is right, different. Right. Airplane safety is different. This is life or death. Here's where we the government has to step in. You know, again, I, I, I would challenge that kind of claim. I mean, the person making that claim has still got to explain or demonstrate why the mechanism that works for apps wouldn't work for airplanes yeah. or for heart surgery. Moreover, they've got to explain why all these problems with state-enforced regulatory systems, you know, they've got to justify in their claim in the face of that. And I really do think it's, it's, a, it's a mistake I mean, I get this in my field, people say not only health, but also education. You know, we can't allow people to buy and sell education in the marketplace like shoes. No, no, education is special, it's unique, it needs to be provided by the state, blah, blah, blah. I, yeah, I don't find those arguments very compelling. I think education, health, scientific research, I mean, all these goods and services are not so different from other goods and services that the market somehow breaks down. That's sort of a background assumption that people 
they make it, they assume it's obvious, but it's really not. Yeah, no, I agree hundred percent. So as we wrap this podcast up, I want to talk about your most recent book, Managers Matter, The Perils of a Boss's Society. So, so uh, I saw it circulating around on social media. I think I might, that might've been one of the ways I found you also, and also that you're a keynote speaker at the Free Market Medical Association. But tell us about that book. Yeah, so the book is, it was published in October of last year. And it's a trade book. It's meant for the general reader. Uh, so I uh, hope that some of your uh, listeners will check it out. Now, um, the, the book is, it attempts to push back against a popular narrative that is in, well, certainly the business culture of today, but society more broadly, that, you know, traditional, you know, sort of hierarchical ways of doing things are are, are out of style and are no longer effective, millennial and Gen Z workers, they need a fluid, loosely structured, you know, workplace with a lot of work from home and flex hours and self-organizing teams and the sort of traditional managerial role in sort of, you know, formulating organizational policy, helping to, uh, you know, um, guide and supervise employees, helping to coordinate what people do in an organization. That's too old fashioned. You know, that's 1950s style, you know, madman culture or whatever. Now we need everything to be fluid and agile and lean and flexible. And what we argue in the book, um, I mean, the book is a little bit of a polemic or it's a counter polemic. We say, look, there are advantages to lean and agile and flexible to be sure, but they're not panaceas. There are drawbacks to those ways of organizing companies and doctor's offices and so forth as well. Those need to be taken into consideration. And maybe the sort of conventional managerial structure and role is not as obsolete as the trendy consultants and authors would have you believe. So I'd like to think the book is, is also sort of a guide for managers. Okay, our world has changed in some ways. So in the digital era and the networked era, how do we balance the need for flexibility, and taking advantage of dispersed knowledge, et cetera. How do we balance that against the sort of conventional roles of managerial coordination, uh, helping people to cooperate? And we offer some rules and principles, some guidelines, some heuristics that will help managers figure out how to navigate that difficult territory for their particular company or industry or setting. Yeah, I, 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 I'm really excited about reading that book. Um, because there has just been a, a paradigm shift over the last, you know, few decades, and maybe the last decade especially, about how, you know, a workplace environment it should be different than it was 50 years ago. And like you say, it, it is different, and it should be different. But by the same token, I think, you know, one thing that your book is talking about is that we, we still need a boss. We still need a leader. We still need somebody in charge. Um, because any organization, whether it be, a basketball team or, you know, a, a Fortune 500 company, there's got to be somebody in charge. Yeah. And uh, uh, we also address the fact that what it means to be in charge is not what people think it often think it means. It doesn't mean top-down command and control. It doesn't mean dictating what everybody does. What it does involve, right, is obviously setting goals, uh, monitoring performance, helping to choose the right person for the right task, deciding what kind of authority can be delegated to lower levels and what needs to be retained at the top. And ultimately, it's kind of, you know, it was Harry Truman, I think, was famous for having a little sign on his desk that said the buck stops yeah, here. Right. right. Meaning to be the boss, as we conceive it, you're the person who cannot pass the buck to somebody else. <laughs> At the end of the day, you're ultimately responsible for what gets done, how it gets done, whether results are achieved or not. Now, that doesn't mean you do everything yourself. 
you delegate, but you, you're the one who decides what to delegate, to whom to delegate, when to make changes. Mm -hmm. You set policies and procedures, and you can't pass that responsibility on to somebody else. Okay. That's what it means to be the boss. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, Peter, it's been a pleasure interviewing you. I There's a lot of topics. I, I could talk for hours on this topic. There's a lot of other topics that um, you speak on, and I'm going to have you back on our podcast so we can talk about those, those topics. So, um, as we wrap this podcast up, if anybody has any questions for you, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah, sure. Uh, people can find me on social media. My name is Peter Klein, K-L-E-I-N. I think if you Google me, I, I usually I'm the first person that comes up. Uh, my middle initial is G, as in my middle name's Gordon. So my my social media handle is Peter G. Klein. You can actually just go to PeterGKlein.com. That redirects to my university website. I'm on social media at Peter G. Klein, but I'd love to interact with your uh, with your uh, listeners and viewers if they have questions. If they have uh, comments, want to have some further dialogue, we'll be delighted to do that. And, of course, happy to have another conversation with you guys yeah. uh, when the right moment. Yeah. Uh, okay. Peter, thank you so much for being on today. My pleasure. And listeners and viewers, thank you for listening and tuning in to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Tune in Monday. Our guest is Joel Evans. He uh, wrote a book. Uh, he's also a personal health coach. And we will be it's – a, it's at an unusual time. Usually it's 1230 to 1.00. 30 Pacific Standard Time. It will be at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time Monday. You want you don't want to miss out on that. And thank you for tuning in to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you. Yeah.